The Water Values Podcast is sponsored by the following market-leading companies and organizations, by the American Water Works Association, dedicated to the world's most important resource, by Black & Veatch, building a world of difference, by Ziptility, the only app utility crews need to find, fix, and manage infrastructure assets from the field, by Intera, geoscience and engineering solutions, and by Xylem. Let's solve water. This is session 168. Welcome to the Water Values Podcast. This is the podcast dedicated to water utilities, resources, treatment, reuse, and all things water. Now here's your host, Dave McGimsey. Hello and welcome to another session of the Water Values Podcast. As my daughter Sarah said, my name is Dave McGimsey and thank you for joining me and I hope this finds you safe and healthy amidst this public health crisis we all find ourselves in. Today, Greg Quist of Smart Cover Systems discusses a smart sewer solution that he created 15 years ago and has had tremendous success with, but first, a little housekeeping. A hearty thank you again to our sponsors, the American Waterworks Association, Black & Veatch, Ziptility, Intera, and Xylem. And I'd like for you to do me a favor, if you work for or if you work with any of these sponsors, thank your boss or your contact at that sponsor's firm and tell them that you appreciate their leadership in the industry through the sponsorship. And if you're interviewing with, for a job with one of the sponsors, again, please thank them and let you know them that you appreciate their, thought, their, their support of thought leadership in the water sector. You'd be surprised how far that simple acknowledgement will go. Um, and as long as you're letting the sponsors know that you appreciate the support of the water industry, education, and thought leadership, why not leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn, or whatever other podcast directory you are accessing the podcast on. That'd be greatly appreciated and will help others find out about the podcast. Now let's get on to our feature interview with Greg Quist of Smart Cover Systems. Let's get that water flowing. Well, Greg, welcome to the Water Values Podcast. So glad you could come on. Uh, for starters, could you please give us a little about who you are, your background, and how you got interested in water? Well, first of all, Dave, thank you very much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here this morning. I, I always love talking about water. Um, it's kind of an interesting story. I'll try to keep it short, um, but I'm a technologist by background. Uh, somehow I got sucked into running for a water board in 1990, and I <laughs> somehow got elected and uh, ended up uh, being on this water board. I've been there now for 30 years. It's a retail water board here in Escondido, California. Uh, from that position, I was also a director of the San Diego County Water Authority, which is the uh, San Diego Regional Wholesaler. And uh, while I was on that board, I met a fellow named David Drake, who's a Caltech electrical engineer. And I'm a physicist by background, and he was an electrical engineer, and the rest of the folks on the San Diego County Water Authority board were lawyers and accountants and that sort of thing. So uh, we were naturally attracted to each other and uh, ended up doing some things together. And uh, uh, that's how we got involved in water. Uh, in terms of uh, the company itself, uh, Smart Cover, um, we uh, actually were sitting around his living room in 2004, 2005, uh, excuse me, and uh, we're thinking, gosh, this, the water industry really is a little bit behind the times in terms of technology. All this new technology is coming out and the water industry is behind the sort of the 1950s if you look at uh, how they were doing things. So we figured, hey, hey we're technologists and uh, we'd like to help these guys out. So uh, we made a couple of phone calls to some of our friends and would literally ask them what keeps you up at night. And we were expecting to get a technical answer like uh, fleet management or leak detection or something like that. And the answer they gave us was both surprising and interesting. And it was sewer spills. What can you guys do about sewer spills? 
So oddly enough, uh, we kind of scratched our heads and hung up the phone and jumped on the internet and looked around and there was no one solving the problem. So uh, we said, oh, that's interesting. And then we went to the US Patent Office and there was no patents on it. So we said, huh, maybe this is a business we could get into. So that's literally how we got started. Um, we uh, ended up kind of going back to our customers at that point, our friends in the industry and said, hey, uh, how, do you want, how do you want this thing to work? So uh, we ended up asking them what they wanted the product to look like because Dave and I started with a blank sheet of paper. We had no preconceived notions and they, they told us what it should look like, how it should work, and we built it from there. And luckily, in 2005, if you know when the iPhone came out, it came out in 2006, it was just about the time that, that the kind of confluence of technology that allowed batteries to work for a long period of time and have reliable communications was there. If we tried this 10 years earlier, it probably wouldn't have worked. So that's how the whole company got started. That's, that's terrific. Now, uh, can you describe a li- you know, exactly what smart cover is? I mean, because I think uh, that, that was great background on, on how smart cover got started. But what, what, what is the product? That's a, that's a great question. Um, so when, when we went back to our customers and said, what do you want? Uh, the first thing they told us was, uh, give us the answers. We don't want to have to worry about communications or power or installing anything. So make it a turnkey system. And this is back before the term Internet of Things was sort of coined. So we effectively built an Internet of Things solution. Uh, they didn't want to have their IT departments involved. They didn't want to have their engineers involved. They just wanted to be able to hop on the Internet or look at their cell phones and get the answers. So we built a system that had sensors uh, that mount underneath manhole covers, and these sensors measure water levels, among other things, in sewers, and then send that information back through a wireless communication system uh, right now we use the Iridium Backbone, which is a, a low-Earth orbit satellite system. Uh, that goes to our servers, which is effectively what is now called the cloud. Uh, and then uh, that information is uh, disseminated out to our customers, either through a, you know, a handheld device or, or through the Internet in the computer. They can also talk back to our computers as well. It's fully, it's fully two-way. So they can talk back to the sensors, change set points, turn things on and off, and all that sort of thing. So it's a complete, standalone, um, turnkey system. And one of the early things that I thought was amusing was that some of our customers, when we were out there installing these things, said, man, this is great. The IT department's not involved. So that was, that was kind of interesting. <laughs> That's hilarious. Uh, so you, you set out to um, correct sewer overflows. Was it primarily SSOs or CSOs? So it is uh, sanitary sewer as opposed to combined sewer, just so that your listeners understand the difference. Um, so sanitary sewers are separate from stormwater. And back east, uh, where the older uh, systems are, there's, I think there's about 800 systems that are still uh, combined sewers, which combine stormwater with, with uh, sanitary sewage, and they're naturally built to overflow uh, when the stormwater gets heavy. So uh, we have been doing that as well. But we started out on the sanitary side and are, are now doing really kind of both kinds of sewers. Yeah, are, are, is there a difference in how you uh, in roll out those systems? I mean, wh- I'm just kind of curious uh, in the difference in in implementing a a smart cover system in SSO versus CSO territory. Yeah, so uh, on the SSO side, um, we live in Southern California, and the regulatory board here is called the uh, Regional Water Quality Control Board. We're in Region Nine, and the executive director of Region Nine when we started. Uh, was a fellow that said there's no excuse for having any kind of sewer spill at any time in a sanitary system because it should be designed properly to handle all the uh, all the insults that can happen, whether it be a blockage or whether it be a, a storm event. 
So the concept is with a sanitary sewer, you really want to keep the sewage running where it should go. And uh, that's what the, what people want here is effectively zero spills as, as a goal. On, this, on the combined side, on the other hand, uh, because they were designed on purpose to overflow uh, when stormwater got into the sewer so it wouldn't overwhelm the treatment plants, it's more there a matter of, of measuring uh, when it happened and how, how large the overflows are. So under those circumstances, when we're doing CSO monitoring, it's really to help uh, our customers tell the regulators that the, the sewage started at this time, ended at this time, and this is how much was overflowing. So uh, since the Clean Water Act came out in 1973, 1972, uh, about that time period, um, the uh, EPA has been pushing a lot of the combined systems to try to separate, which is an extremely expensive uh, uh, proposition. Uh, they have to re basically rebuild their whole sewer system. And for a lot of cities back in the Northeast, that's a very expensive proposition. So in the meantime, uh, the regulators are asking them to tell them what's going on so they know how bad the situation is. Yeah, and and the, I think that was a great example that you gave about how the CSOs and, and SSOs uh, are different. Having grown up in CSO territory, I'm, I, I guess I'm a little surprised again that that the genesis of Smart Cover was in an SSO system. Um yes. So uh, I, I'm kind of curious, what what's the regulatory regime that that caused the SSO system to to kind of look for uh, look look for a solution here? Um, so uh, it, it, again, it was a confluence of uh, things at the right time. Um, when we started in 2005, it turns out that in Sacramento. Uh, the, the state board, uh, state water resources control board, was uh, undergoing uh, the development of a process called the wastewater discharge requirements, the WDRs, and they came out in 2006. And California is with the first state in the country. And a lot of times we we lead on these environmental uh, ideas. Uh, the concept was that uh, every operator of a sewage system had to report every single spill, and that was a change of how things were done in the past. Before it was. Oh, if it was more than 100 gallons or 1,000 gallons, they had to re report a spill. But now, if it, if it was one drop, they had to report a spill. And the second part of the WDRs was that if someone did not report a spill, it was no longer a civil penalty, it was a criminal penalty. So people got really seriously concerned about making sure they didn't have sewer spills in California because we started here, and that's kind of how the company got started here in, in San Diego County. We, we used customers around here. By the time 2006 came along, we were already out there doing this to begin with. And so people realized, gosh, this is a good way to make sure that I don't get in trouble. Right, right. Um, so let's kind of talk about implementation, things like that. Uh, or when you roll out and implement uh, the, the, the system, you know, you say utility X calls you up and say, Hey, I've, I'm, I, I have some overflow problems. I'm, I'm interested in, in your solution. What, what, what are the f steps that, that, that utility needs to go through in order to implement the smart cover system? Uh, excellent question. Um, they, first of all, have to identify where they've historically had spills. And that's sort of the first thing that happens is they look at their, what they call the trouble spots or hot spots. And these are spots that uh, you know have recurring spill problems. Uh, there's capacity problems perhaps downstream where new development has come in and all of a sudden there's a lot more sewage going through a system that was designed for a lot fewer houses. So they know where those areas are. And if you talk to the folks out in the field, they are a tremendous resource in terms of understanding how their sewer systems work. Because after all, these pipes are underground and 
for the most part, they're invisible and people don't pay attention to them. So by putting our system in, now they're kind of getting real-time visibility of this underground asset uh, all the time uh, from, from remote sites. They can sit in their office and watch what's going on. So they, they look at the spots that they've been having problems in. That's the first place they go. And the next question they, they ask is, well, um, those are the spots where we think we're going to have spills. How about the other spots where we, you know, they, they happen sort of randomly? And under those circumstances, we actually do risk assessments uh, with our customers and, and help them go through the process of identifying where those areas are. And sometimes it's not necessarily the probability of a spill, but the consequence of a spill. Uh, you know, a lot of times we put in uh, smart covers next to the mayor's house so the mayor doesn't have a sewage spill back up into his house or, or in a commercial area so that uh, businesses don't get shut down, that sort of thing. So those are all considerations in terms of where they're deployed. When you roll this out, like, are you putting it in every third manhole? Are you, are you concentrating on putting these in on the, I assume, maybe I should back up and ask, how is the system physically connected? I mean, how are you doing this? You know, what, what's, what, what does the hardware look like? It's about the size uh, of George Costanza's wallet, if you remember that from the Seinfeld show. Uh, it's a small device, um, and we've, we've really miniaturized everything. We've made the battery small enough and the uh, electronics small enough, and we encapsulate it in plastic, so it, uh, it, it really does a really good job. It's rugged. Anything you put in a sewer over time is going to get chewed up. It's, it's probably the worst environment you can imagine. Um, so we built, we built this device and we put it on a bracket and, and actually mount it underneath uh, the manhole cover that's existing there with a couple of bolts. So that then holds the ultrasonic sensor which measures the water levels continuously. And so now we can get a pattern of what's going on underneath the, the, uh, uh, the manhole cover. That information then uh, comes every, we measure uh, that every five or ten minutes, which is variable. We can, we can change the timing on that, but uh, then we communicate to the Iridium satellite system, and that comes back down to our server, which then uh, goes to our customers' um, uh, devices in, in that, that way. So that's, that's sort of how the whole system works. Okay, and you take these, the, the devices and put them in the hotspots, or are you kind of monitoring the entire system so that you can, you can track how, if, if you're making adjustments in a hotspot, how that impacts other areas? I'm just kind of curious how this, how this interacts with with the system and as a whole so your, your question earlier about um uh, where do you put them is a great one because we do not put them on every manhole cover because that's just not cost it's cost prohibitive but if you if you think about a sewer it's got a small slope on it and it's got a certain depth to it so at one location you can actually monitor many locations downstream because if there's a problem you can actually see that change in the water level pattern up, upstream many, many manholes in some cases it might be 10 or 15 in some cases it might be two or three uh, so effectively, we're sort of doing like an EKG of, of the sewer system. So in a, uh, let me give you an example of a place that has almost 100% eliminated sewer spills. That's Hawthorne, California, uh, which is a small city right next to LAX Airport. If you're flown into LAX, you fly effectively right over Hawthorne. Hawthorne's got 2,500 manholes. Uh, it's a completely gravity-fed system, so there's no pumps. So it's all running basically downhill. Uh, and they put in 50 systems in their 2,500, which is 2.5%. Two and, and based on where they've placed them and the records of sewer spills in the past uh, and the response that they get when, they respond, when, when, the, when the signal says they should be doing something, uh, they've effectively eliminated sewer spills. For the past uh, 10 or 11 years, they've had one sewer spill at a location that was not monitored. So they've, they've gone from uh, about 10 spills a year to zero. So that's an example of how well the system can work if it's deployed properly. Sure. And I would imagine this treasure trove of data that's coming in, 
uh, will would help with other aspects of the utilities, for example, capital planning and things like that. Can you can you speak how your customers have have uh, benefited from the, the the treasure trove of data that you've you've, you've accumulated? Yeah, you bet. That's uh, that's a great example of uh, of where the actual big money is being spent, right? Because if you kind of look at the age of infrastructure, uh, particularly sewer pipes, uh, a lot of that was put in post World War II, and it's getting to the end of useful lifetime. It's a pretty scary uh, uh, situation. We kind of call it the gray tsunami. Uh, what, what's going to happen with all this pipe that has to be replaced? Uh, it's going to be an expensive proposition. So what we do effectively is we can tell people that have pipes that are starting to go bad. Uh, how bad they're going and how, how quickly they're going. It's effectively a, a remote condition assessment capability. Uh, one good example is San Antonio, Texas, where we were put in, uh, they had they were under consent order, which is a, a, a legal agreement between uh, a utility and the EPA uh, telling them they gotta fix their sewer problem. They were under consent order and they had a whole bunch of pipes that were decaying uh, quite rapidly. So they put our systems there to monitor those pipes so that they didn't cause a problem before they had a chance to go there and fix the pipes. So now they can prioritize uh, what capital projects they can do based on the kind of responses they're getting uh, from their smart cover data information. Right. And uh, what about other things like the O&M? I imagine this kind of highlights areas that need to be kind of cleaned and, and you know, getting, getting the, the quote unquote flushable wipes and the fatbergs out, things of that nature. Right. So that's another application uh, because uh, what came out of the uh, there's a thing called the CMOM, which is Capacity Maintenance Operations and Management uh, Rules from the EPA in, uh, I think it was the 80s. Uh, effectively, they said, uh, here are some best practices that sewer systems ought to use to try to avoid spills. And the number one uh, best practice was to clean their pipes. Uh, so uh, pipe cleaning became a very popular thing to do to try to reduce spills. The problem with pipe cleaning is it's expensive, uh, uses these big trucks, these big uh, vector trucks or or uh, uh, vacuum trucks that uh, drive around the streets that look a little bit like elephants. Uh, and they, uh, they go and they, they, they jet these pipes with high pressure water uh, and then they clean them out. And the problem is it's, it's expensive, it wears and tears on the pipes uh, and it costs a lot of labor and you're burning gasoline, which is not good for the carbon footprint. So we've enabled some of our customers to, to minimize that cleaning, effectively clean when they needed to be cleaned. Because if you're a good manager, you're going to overclean by, by definition. You, you don't want to have a spill, so you're going to clean. Uh, so we've been able to tell them uh, when to clean uh, based on the, the data that we're getting, and that, that's been able to save a lot of money. Again, in the San Antonio case, uh, we've, we've been able to knock their high-frequency cleaning, which is like monthly cleanings, down by about 90 95%, which is a pretty big change. It's, it's an impressive uh, difference in, in, in terms of how the technology impacts people's operations. Yeah, that's real money for the utility. Um, yeah. Uh, so what about additional innovations? How, how, how has the product changed over time? What are you, what, what are the kind of, what's the next generation you're looking at here? Um, we, so the fact that we've got a device that sits on a manhole cover and can, you can speak to it and it can speak to you, um, lends a lot of power to understanding what's going on around your environment. And people talk about smart cities and, and, uh, measuring things like, uh, parking lot uh, uh, capacity and and uh, turning lights on and off and that sort of thing. But I think the, the most impactful part of, I think, smart cities is really happening underground with the water and wastewater systems. Um, so uh, I, what we've been thinking about is what other sensors can we put out there that can help a city uh, better operate all of their facilities? Uh, now that you've got, you know, you've got manholes all over the place, 
Uh, you can put other sensors out there. And the next generation of, of sensor we're putting out is measuring hydrogen sulfide gas. And I'm not sure if you're aware, but hydrogen sulfide is a byproduct of a lot of sewer operations. Um, there's two bad things about hydrogen sulfide. First of all, it, it, uh, it smells bad. Uh, so there's a, there's a public nuisance problem associated with hydrogen sulfide. And second of all, it, it, chews, a, it chews away concrete pipes. So it, it decreases the life of pipes and causes corrosion, and, and, uh, and therefore a lot of money has to be spent replacing those pipes. So our next device coming out is measuring hydrogen sulfide. So we're, our ears are always open uh, to our customers asking us, well, what else can you do with this platform that now sits on my mantle cover uh, to give me additional benefit and value? Yeah, and I, I think that's, that is going to tie into my next question because I, I like the, what you've described in terms of you say you listen to your customers, you've talked to your customers, because there's so often technology companies in the water space, they've got a great you know, solution, but they may not have spoken with, with the utilities and find out exactly what, what the need is. And you mentioned that you did that from, from the get-go. So my next question is kind of what, what's, what's your advice in terms of uh, if, if someone has a technology solution, how do they, how do they, uh, get that into the adoption phase? You know, what, what needs to happen for that technology solution to, to kind of gain a foothold in the utility space? Um, let me uh, give a little shout out to George Hawkins, who I think you had on your podcast a few weeks back. Um, George and I are buddies and, uh, I'm really a big, a big fan of his moonshot missions. Uh, thing he's going out there and trying to solve that exact problem and that's uh, how do you get uh, utilities to be more open to adoption of new technologies and I, and I, I think that's a really really excellent question and like you said uh, uh, the inventors um, curse I think is is when they come up with a great idea but they really haven't found a, a problem that it's solving uh, and I think the answer really is that you have to be open to ask the our customers our utilities what is really keeping you up at night uh, what, what, what problems are you having? And as a guy that sits on both sides of the fence because I'm on a board, a uh, retail water board, I, you know, I, I'm listening on both, on both ends, which is good. And uh, to me, uh, rates are probably the most important thing that people care about because over time, when we start talking about the capital costs of replacing these pipelines, rates are really what ultimately affects customers' pocketbooks, uh, and they care a lot about that. They care about rates, and they also care about um, customer service. And I think uh, the, the whole world has been spoiled by being able to carry around a very powerful computer in your hand uh, that can do all kinds of things called a smartphone. And that's, that's kind of got people to think about, well, how does, how does my utility do a better job of providing services in this world of information technology and, and at the same time deliver a product that has to be there at 724 uh, all the time and very reliable. So it's a, it's, a, it's a tough thing. But I think one of the reasons that we've been successful, and we're a bit of a weird duck because – David and I come out of the industry, so to speak, uh, and we speak the language. So I think it's really important for uh, somebody that wants to make an impact on the technology side to listen uh, before you before you act. Uh, and I think that that would enable people to do this a little bit better. Greg, I have been very impressed with with this interview. You've kind of just nailed everything. Um, what what's kind of your leave behind message? excited about the future uh, in terms of where utilities are going. I think we've turned a corner. Uh, we're 15 years into this now. We started in 2005 and now it's 2020. And I believe that people that are sort of of the, uh, of the, um, of the generation that, I, that I'm in are starting to um, 
retire out of their positions in a lot of these utilities the next generation that's coming in is less resistant to change and i think that's a good thing because you know it's interesting because the in the terms of water utility you're delivering a product that's it's a hard product in the sense that it has weight you have to deliver something to somebody's house all the time uh it's a little bit different than the world of amazon where you can get on the get on the internet and order something that shows up the next day in fact i had an interesting conversation with a technologist just the other night and they were saying well people are getting getting spoiled by the fact that you know you can you can order something and it shows up at your door the next day and i said well the water industry's been doing that for decades uh we've been supplying stuff that shows up your door all the time 724 365 days a year and if it's not there boy it's it's a problem so that mindset is something that i think technologists have to understand that we've been doing this well for a long time and the question is how do you weave these different types of technologies together that's not necessarily a specific you know answer but i think the question is that the real answer is listen listen to your customer yeah yeah and you know something you said in there kind of piqued my my interest uh you you kind of said the next generation is willing to kind of uh uh, adapt more and make changes faster because that's one of the things I've noticed about the industry is it's very slow moving, um, and it I, I I do understand why it's slow moving because they're dealing with a public health issue right and you can't just willy nilly make a decision and have that have a, a negative consequence and given your background in the technology space I'm curious what your thoughts are on you know what's the right level of of kind of conservatism in that maybe I shouldn't say conservatism given our hyper uh, polarization in the, in the, uh, the political sphere, but in terms of utilities, not, not, you know, what, what's the right balance for making changes versus keeping, keeping things the same. Any thoughts on that? Yeah. um, First of all, let me mention, you know, the F word uh, in the water industry and that's Flint. Um, uh, because the Flint, the Flint uh, crisis really kind of pointed out an example of how things can go wrong when people try to make changes. The city of Flint was trying to do the right thing. They were trying to take uh, their water source and get a different water source and save money for their customers. The wrong thing they did was lie about it afterwards, and that's why they're in trouble now and going to jail, uh, which is a good thing. But nevertheless, the, 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 the public um, understanding of what happened and the publicity associated with that is what causes our customers to really cringe when they think about making changes uh, because like you said it's a public safety issue and things have been working fine for many many years uh chlorine as a as a disinfectant for example came out in the early 1900s it's been around for more than 100 years and it hasn't changed so if, if someone walks up to a utility and says hey i've got a better way to disinfect your water they've got to think about the fact that there's been something that's been working for a long time um so i, I think that in, from a technology standpoint I would, I would say that the uh, one of the keys to success is, is incrementalism. Uh, try to think about how th- you can make things better in a little way, uh, in a way that doesn't cause them to do things a lot differently because they have a, they, they have a way of doing things. They've been doing it for a long time. Uh, you're not going to change the way they do things quickly. So you've got to understand how to get into the organization, do it incrementally, and also be part of their, of their process. And I think that's an important part of the success of, uh, of new technologies. Yeah, that's terrific. Uh, Greg, thank you so much for coming on. You've been absolutely terrific. Uh, for those who want to find out more about you, more about Smart Cover Systems and your work there, where can they go to get that information? Uh, I think the best place would obviously be our website, and it's www.smartcoversystems.com. There's a place to look for us. Terrific. And, uh, look for the people looking into it. And also check us out on LinkedIn as well. 
You got it. Well, uh, one last thing. I'll just kind of throw it open, uh, Greg, if you have any, uh, any additional words of wisdom or anything of that nature, we'd love to hear it. Uh, again, I'm excited about the future. Uh, I think uh, you know, the new technologies that have been happening over the past 20 years with information technology, the digital revolution, the Internet, all that stuff is going to have start to have a, a much bigger uh, impact on our utilities, make them more efficient, save money, do things smartly. And I think that's that's the way we're headed. And it's a very exciting time for us. Yeah. Well, thank you again, Greg. You've been fantastic. Appreciate it much. Thank you, Dave. Appreciate it. All right. What a terrific interview Greg gave. Thank you so much, Greg, for taking time out of your day to come speak with us. And I really found a couple of important points uh, in in Greg's message. Uh, first was that SmartCover listened to its customers when it developed its product. And second, it focus, his, his focus on change, I thought, was uh, important. And that is a couple aspects. First, the next generation uh, is less resistant to change. And, and the other aspect of change is that incrementalism is going to get you farther. You know, while lots of people are looking for that revolutionary change out there, uh, and, you know, that can happen, uh, you're more likely to achieve success with smaller scale changes, that incrementalism that Greg mentioned. Well, let me know what you liked about the podcast. You can tweet at the po- about the podcast using the hashtag water values, and you can tweet at me using my handle at DTM1993. You can email me at david.mcgimsey at dentons.com, and you can sign up for the newsletter at the website. Just Google the Water Values podcast or type in thewatervalues.com, and that'll get you redirected to where the, uh, the current web host sighting is. Well, again, thank you for tuning in and a huge thank you to our sponsors. Again, the sponsors of the Water Values podcast include the American Water Works Association, Black & Veatch, Ziptility, Intera, and Xylem. Thank you so much for your support. In closing, please remember to keep the core message of the Water Values podcast in mind as you go about your daily business. Water is our most valuable resource, so please join me by going out into the world and acting like it. listening to the water values podcast thank you for spending some of your day with my dad and me well thank you for tuning in to the disclaimer i'm a lawyer licensed in indiana and colorado and nothing in this podcast should be taken as providing legal advice or as establishing an attorney client relationship with you or with anyone else additionally nothing in this podcast should be considered a solicitation for professional employment I'm just a lawyer that finds water issues interesting and that believes greater public education is needed about water issues. And that includes enhancing my own education about water issues because no one knows everything about water.